Mark chapter 10, 46 through 52. Let's get with it. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And we had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole. And immediately he received sight and followed Jesus in the way. Now, it is on my bucket list, so to speak, to actually go to the Middle East and be there myself someday. Um, I, have, I have read stories I have looked at, I don't know how many uh, uh, Bible illustrations. I have listened to other people who have gone. I have seen photos and pictures. I've looked at movies. I've even done VR, Google Earth. So I could travel there and spend about eight hours on my son's uh, uh, VR system. He has some kind of a of a of an oculi shift or something like that. Anyway, you put this thing on. And you can actually like go down and you can tour the Middle East. And I've wanted to go so bad that that's what I've done. I fear, I fear that I'm never going to actually be able to go. Um, and so I can only tell you the stories that my father, my father has been to Jericho on three separate occasions. And it's a funny thing because of all the places that he saw, when he described Jericho, it was the beauty of Jericho that he talked about the the most when he was talking about aesthetically pleasing cities. Now, there were more important places to him emotionally and more historic sites for him. But it was Jericho that, that, that he talked about for its beauty. And uh, looking at the pictures and, and, and talking to my dad, um, this is what I know about the city. It is a cursed city situated hard by Jerusalem. Meaning that for Bartimaeus, God wasn't nearly as far off as he seemed. Help was not as improbable as he thought. And that's where God is, brothers and sisters. He's always at hand, whether or not he seems that way. He's always, as Psalm 46, 1 says, a very present help in time of trouble. Growing up, that's not what I thought a lie was. A very present help in time of trouble. As it turns out, that's actually talking about Jesus. God knows what the lost is going through. And here's what's important. He not only knows what the lost is going through, he cares. Now, no Calvinist believes that. Uh, at least, unless he's a bad Calvinist. Which, in a weird way, would make him a good Calvinist, if you know what I mean. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 with me for a second. Hebrews chapter 4, we'll start in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Well, that's talking about, that's talking about the lost. That's, that's are the elect. That's talking about the saved. I mean, after all, a dead man can't run a race. No, a dead man can't run a race. But apparently a dead man can hear. Apparently, an unsaved Italian military man 
who doesn't know Christ as a savior can give alms to the poor and worship God every day and an angel can proclaim that to be a memorial for him in heaven. That's an awful lot of things to do for a dead man who can't run a race. Now, dead men can't run a race, but apparently they can give alms to the poor. How'd they do that? How did Cornelius, in the sight of God, before he was saved and not elect, do works that were a memorial for him in heaven? How'd that happen? Something to think about. Say, well, you saying he earned his salvation? No, Cornelius didn't earn his salvation. You know what he did? In seeking for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, do you know what he did? He earned his opportunity to have salvation presented to him. That's what he earned. That's what this man's about to do. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He was tempted in all points like as we are. He was despised and rejected and beaten and shamed and broken and blamed. The difference being, he didn't deserve it. He was just. He suffered for us. His pain was cause, not consequence. He is not a God who is afar off. He wants to go through it with you, saved or unsaved, if you'll let him. He wants to help. Friends, the greatest news I ever heard was this. Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. And that's what I am. I am a sinner. And if you want to be numbered with Christ, you need to number yourself with the transgressors because that's where he'll be found. Listen, do you want Jesus as your friend? Do you know what I found out? If you truly do, all you have to do is identify as a sinner in need of a savior. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, and I can't imagine why there would be somebody here tonight that doesn't, but perchance you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you're looking for the greatest friend in the universe, then pay attention to what you're about to hear. But for the saved in this room, I want you to understand that Paul's pattern is this. No matter what you're doing, no matter what you have going on, no matter what kind of ministry or what kind of an agenda You owe a debt. And the debt that you owe is the verbal proclamation of the gospel to the people that you come in contact with every day. And you better figure out how to make that happen because that's not just good preaching. Paul expects us. Because he is our apostle. He is the one who will present us to the bride. He is the the one who, who... who actually walks us down and gives us away. You do know that. We have been espoused by his gospel. Another thing that will make a Calvinist choke up green apples is pointing out that Paul referred to the gospel as his gospel. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul, as our apostle to the Gentile church, said that his life was supposed to be a pattern for ours. Christ is expecting that you figure out what Paul meant by owing a debt to every man, and that debt is the gospel. How are you going to do that? Missions begins with personal evangelism. 
Until you have personal evangelism, you never get to missions. So I want to very quickly point out a few elements of our passage for you to consider. The first being taken from verse 46. And the first element of this passage I want you to consider is the crowd. Look at it. And they came to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people. The Bible tells us great is the mystery of godliness. We have, we have uh, uh, waxed on and on about that this week. It is a great mystery. It's a mystery. For, it, we've enumerated the many ways that I believe that, that the mystery of godliness is indeed a mystery. God manifests in the flesh. And so here he comes. The eternal God from his high and holy place. Down to miserable mankind. Veiled in the frailty of Adam's flesh. Taking the time to pass through a cursed city. On a cursed planet. Filled with cursed people. Who are completely ignoring a cursed man. Who is helpless to save himself from a cursed condition. This is a miserable passage of scripture from a certain perspective, isn't it? Lo, he approaches the light of the world, shining in a dark place, the bread of heaven, the fountain of living waters to succor the sterile and sapless dead branches broken from the true vine through Adam's rebellion. Yet the vine is now grown and extended to the citizenry of Jericho down its own municipal highway and willing, eager even to engraft them back to their intended state disposed to make them again green and supple and fruitful. The branch from the root of Jesse, the true vine, extending into cursed cities to cursed people in cursed situations in a cursed condition to make them lively once again. You know what that is? That's missions. Jesus of Nazareth, though God, willing to condescend to men of lower estate, willing to love his enemies, only to be viewed with skepticism and revilement, only finding interest as a means of entertainment through perchance some miracle or some free lunch. Only to be lightly esteemed, if at all, by the great number of people, the crowd, who because they were not yet physically withered and not yet physically wanting and not yet physically blind, were unable to discern their spiritual maladies. No friends, there was but a solitary man among the casually religious, ardently sensual throng who would benefit from this incredible circumstance. The old, blind, begging, broke, joke, beleaguered Bartimaeus, who had but one thing and one thing only going for him. He knew he had a need which only divine mercy could meet which was a good thing for him as that happens to be the only thing that God is looking for among the raging, foaming, swelling sea of sinners. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, which ironically enough, I I did come in sheep's clothing today, but I took it off. It actually is Irish sheep's clothing. How bizarre. But inwardly, (laughs) I'm never wearing that thing again, but inwardly, they are ravening wolves. I suppose the great calamity of Western culture is the number of people who confuse curiosity about Jesus with conversion to him. Those who praise, praise, 
and worship, worship, and love, love, and serve, service. But in their hearts where God alone sees, they have fallen short of the praise and the worship and the love and the service of God. They, like the Athenians and strangers of Acts chapter 7, obscure, authentic, biblical, New Testament Christianity with spending their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Never taking the time to examine the evidence which points to the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth and his words which have already been revealed while they scour around for new revelation. The words which he spake, though he walked among them, the evidence parading through their streets, the words of his glorious revelation echoing from his body, reverberating through his own vocal cords, his very voice down their highway. Listen, man, there's always a crowd around Jesus Christ, but the crowd has a problem it just can't ever solve. You know what's wrong with the crowd? John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. You come to God for entertainment, you come to God for a social setting. There's always a crowd around Jesus Christ, but the crowd around Jesus Christ isn't Christianity. It was the crowd that was around Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, there's always a crowd, and they praise Him. And they sing Hosanna. And they sing the King of Israel. And they, they squint their eyes. And they lift up their hands. And they praise. But that same crowd, three days later, was taking those holy hands. And with fists, they were screaming, Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. And we, Laodicean morons, are such simple Simons that we think that the ones that are crowding around to praise Jesus is the Christian crowd. You're a fool. The Christian crowd has a problem. One of those problems is that most of them are going to hell. Five thousand people show up for a free lunch, but then when the preaching gets hard, they all leave. And the disciples were about to leave also, were it not for once again the man with the foot-shaped mouth. Normally he strikes out, but this time homeboy hits a dinger. Where will we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Now that's authentic Christianity. So there's the crowd. I also want you to consider the character. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the, way, sat by the highway side begging. Now Jericho, I am told, is actually quite beautiful. Set before the backdrop of lush green hills, lying lazily beneath the deep azure of the Mediterranean firmament. Generously adorned with palm trees, its most ubiquitous landmark. The thing for which Jericho is identified in that area is its overwhelming number of palm trees. 
Notwithstanding, it was, as previously stated, a wicked city filled with wicked people in a wicked world. But that doesn't always mean there isn't significant residual physical beauty from the dispensation of innocence. Have you ever seen a snake? I'm not going to ask you if you like snakes, because every time I ask if somebody likes snakes, there's some weirdo that likes them. He raises his hand, normally dressed in black and looks like a weirdo. I've got four pet snakes. If you met my python, Daryl, you're weird. Don't talk to me, and I mean ever, even after the rapture. Stay away from me. Snakes are the creepiest things in the world. But they're beautifully creepy. They move beautifully. Some of them have colors. Every color that, oh, I don't know, that might adorn the high priest's chest. You might even say it like this. Some of them have every precious stone as their covering. There's something about a serpent. It's eerie, but it's beautiful. They move mysteriously. They look strange. You can hardly look away. You know what that is? That's the residual beauty of God's creation seen through its fall. But a blind man doesn't care about what exhibit he's at in the zoo, does he? He doesn't care about what animal he's observing. You see, Bartimaeus couldn't enjoy any of it, at least not the visual wonder. Because this whole thing is a portrait that God has given us of a lost man who has yet to receive the gift of eternal life offered through the gospel. He is surrounded by the beauty and mercy and power of God. He is enveloped by the general revelation of physical creation. He can observe the sun and the moon and the stars obeying in their courses. He can test and measure the sheer odds of where and how we exist and the minute variances by which this planet and the lives of its inhabitants are sustained. He can pursue the annals of civilization and apprehend that only those cultures which allowed at least the governing ideals of Mosaic order and its jurisprudence to peaceably and righteously govern have been able to subdue our common lewdness and baseness and malevolence, allowing them and their posterities to enjoy at least some protracted semblance of liberty and morality and safety and justice. He can compare the simply framed prophecies of the Bible to current events and realize He is living in the very 11th hour of God's night watch. He can then collate these observations, considering how the specific revelation of the word of God operates in Congress with the whole sweep of of legitimate Newtonian science, unbiased philosophy, accredited history, current events, and the observable sophistication of human emotion as subjected to the banal repetitions and responsibilities, the tragedies and triumphs, the traumas and dramas of our shared mortal struggle. How all of it, the mammoth aggregate, present an incisive verification of every claim of Scripture, both natural and supernatural. Especially those claims of the gospel to wit, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That he lived a sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins. That he was buried and rose again physically, bodily, literally the third day according to the Scriptures. And that in so doing rendered irrelevant and specious all worldviews and religions operating under the moniker Christian or otherwise. Yet in spite of this beauty and truth and hope, which literally surrounds him, he cannot see any of it. What calamity. 
Well, why? Why, if it's as obvious as you say, if it's as clear as you make it, why can so many not see, many of him, many of whom being much smarter and more knowledgeable than you, a mere verbose Baptist preacher screeching in some auditorium in central southern Ohio? A great question, to be sure. And here's what God proffers as an explanation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God, the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, brothers and sisters, natural man cannot see because he has an enemy whose power and craft and villainy surpass human understanding, who inveterately hates him, who has rigged this world system to keep him in bondage to things and experiences and information which has distorted, which has wrecked, which has twisted, which has obscured truth. That he should slumber and stumble and grope through life guided by other blind men's philosophical conjectures. Never knowing that he or they are blind. For he as they have never seen our known sight. Unaware that Plato himself never clawed his way out from the cave of his own making. Oblivious to a creator. To the love of Christ. To the conviction of the Holy Spirit. To the only solution for the unspeakable eternal horrors which await him. The second the silver cord breaks, hearing stories of dying men's visions, they cling to the mad and desperate and unfounded hope that somehow someone or something good is tending the light at the end of the tunnel. Just as blind Bartimaeus sees no beauty in Jericho, the lost man is visionless of the beauty of Christ and his mercy and provision. He cannot see God provided him the precious riches of family. He cannot perceive God gave him ministers of righteousness who hazard their lives every night while we watch Seinfeld and eat popcorn and dream our little safe Baptist dreams. He does not know God orchestrated his visit to the doctor which detected a growth which couldn't have been stopped if it had been but a few more days. He cannot see his greatest disappointment in life actually shielded him from unendurable emotional pain. No, friends, do you know what a spiritually blind man does instead? Romans chapter 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man... That judge them which do such things and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. 
Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Alexander Pope wrote, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. I know some of you thought that was Frank Sinatra or Elvis, but trust me, Alexander Pope beat them to the punch. You know, he was right. But why do fools do that? Because they're brave? No. Because they're blind. A blind man can't see danger. A blind man can't see the sign that says thin ice. A blind man doesn't know that he's on a narrow passage next to a cliff or is miraculously averting danger going 90 miles an hour on a dark highway, drunk and bleary-eyed, munching on fast food while swerving all over the road, texting and sexting and passing deer and potholes and people he never sees while fumbling on an iPad and playing with a radio. He's but fractions away from eternal hell fire. He's not brave. He's a blind moron. He's ignorant. He's stupid. A blind man can only find emotional attachment with what he can feel or see. He is sensual. I'm sorry, a feel or hear. He is sensual. He can be surrounded by the majesty of a sunrise while clinging to some dead wooden cane, getting more emotional and intellectual stimulation from a curved dead stick than from the wonders of the master artist of the firmament which declares the glory of its creator. The vast portrait of divine witness to his conscience painted upon the canvas of the cosmos under which he shuffles unaware through life. Why? Because he's blind. And because he's blind, he's totally dependent on man for direction. Forced to beg to get by each day. He sees boiling water in a hot pot and says the reason it's boiling is because there is an electrical coil that is heated up that is making it boiling because that is the only conclusion he can come to because he is limited by his blind so-called sight. Never assuming that the reason, the true reason, the initial reason, the first cause of the boiling water is that there was a maker who wanted tea. Simply because the maker's not in the room and scoffs at the notion that there would be such an invisible tea maker. Brothers and sisters, this world is designed to make men beggars. Beggars to money and sports and sex and people and things and money and power. And now in youth, he may very well convince himself of his worth. But as the clock ticks, he feels the uneasy, steadily growing awareness of his mortality. You know what he's realizing? That no matter his station in life, he's a beggar. Never filled, never satisfied, no toy, 
No one, no thing, no position, no promotion, no station, no knowledge, no income, no 401k, no mutual fund, no tax sheltered annuity, no experience ever satisfies. One day he checks himself into the hospital one last time. You know what he's doing? He's begging. Begging for a few more months, a few more weeks, a few more days of life. He's panicked. He's trying to make sure his family doesn't see it. He's trying to go out with dignity. He's wanting to know if there's one more test, if there's one more hope, if there's one more possibility, if there's one more specialist, if there's one more scan, might be able to find something that's wrong with him so that he can be fixed. Begging. Begging like Voltaire, who, while expiring, thrashed in panic, offering his physician half his fortune for a few more days of life. Man has a hole in his soul that can only be filled with the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters. That Spirit who alone can free us from the bondage of sin and dependence on people and circumstances and contentment, and that fear that holds us in bondage. All our days, that fear of death. That spirit who can cause a man to approach the deathbed as a victorious conqueror, as a rich ruler's son about to receive an inheritance incorruptible that fadeth not away instead of rattling out his final ghost-like breaths as a surf to sensuality and science. And what is your answer to that problem? What is your answer to the problem of sin and the certainty of death? When has anyone or anything even professed to provide you with a solution to your sin apart from that friend of sinners and the message of his great and glorious gospel? I want you to consider finally the cry. Or I should say very quickly the cry and then the consequence. Verse 47 again, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. What's he crying out for? Mercy. Give me what I don't deserve. Don't let me have what I do deserve. Why did Jesus stop for him and no one else? Because Jesus had already said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He was taken from prison, Isaiah 53. We read it this morning. And from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? He was cut off of the land of the living. Verse 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. And for this reason, when this blind, beleaguered, broke, Joke, begging, Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus Christ and the Christian crowd tells him to be quiet and he cries out the more, no, no, this is my only chance. 
Have mercy on me, son of David. What does it say happened? What is the consequence of his cry? Verse 49. And Jesus stood still. Wow. Here is Christ, the Son of God, the sovereign dread of time, space, and matter, the Creator, the Eternal One. Do you know what Isaiah said his name is? Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Do you know what he's doing in Jericho, by the way? He's passing through to die. To take the sins of the whole world on his shoulders. To drink of a cup that in his humanity was so fearful, he asked that his father let the cup pass from him, if it be possible. He's literally going to become sin who knew no sin. Before that, he will be beaten all night, stripped, tortured, coronated with thorns, receive 40 stripes from a cat of nine tails. He's going to be betrayed and abandoned. He's going to have his father turn his back on him for drinking of the cup of suffering and sin. And with all this going on, and I want you to try and imagine it as much as you possibly can, the pain and the stress, the agony, the weight of the world, the sweating of great drops of blood, the surrounding of the bulls of Bashan, the destiny of man, the concern for friends and family, with all of that stress and with all of that schedule and with all of that going on, he passes by a blind beggar whom the world has forgotten, whom the city has ignored, whom his family has despised. He stinks. He's weak. He's worthless. He's helpless. And someone says, there's Jesus. And he can't see him. But the bum can still hear. And faith cometh. And hearing by the word of God. And he's heard about this man. This Jesus. He claims to be God. He claims to have come to heal the sick. To cleanse the leper. To set the prisoner free. To cause the dumb to speak and the lame to walk. Why they said he's come to cause the blind to see. And that's why they call it faith brother. Because we're not saved by grace through works. We're saved by grace through faith. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. And so what does Christ tell him? Thy faith has made thee whole. And Jesus, though so busy, and though so stressed, and though so important, and though so rich, and though so powerful, and though so high and holy, and Bartimaeus, though so wretched, though so weak, though so forgotten, though so ignored, though so mocked, and though so blind, 
cries out in despair in faith. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Oh, son of David, hear my humble cry. Oh, friend of sinners, do not pass me by. And do you know what happened? Do you? Because it's the most amazing thing to me. It's more amazing to me than the healing itself is that God stood still and commanded him to be called. And so today, this same Jesus who has passed into the heavens for death could not defeat him, for the grave could not hold him, for hell could not contain him, for the devil could not depose him. And is presently seated at the right hand of the Father. Even today, even now, do you know what still gets his attention? Do you think it's Supreme Court judges? you think Jesus Christ gives a rip about the Supreme Court? You see, but we do. You think he's on pins and needles watching Fox to see when, when Ginsburg passes away? Is that what you think? You think Jesus Christ gives a rip who becomes the president of the United States? You think he's in a bind if Biden gets in? You think he's biting his nails? What do you think? You think he cares if you lose your right to carry guns? You think Jesus Christ cares about that? You think heaven gives a rip about that? Is that what you think? You're crazy! You know what goes on in heaven? Let me tell you what goes on in heaven. Every being there is totally focused on him. And they fall down and they rise up. And they fall down and they rise up. And there are seraphims. And at the speed of light, they fly with wings, with Two sets of wings with twain they cover their face and with twain they cover their feet and with twain they fly and they spend their entire eternity saying one thing. And you know what that is? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You think they stop? You think they stop? Well, six million Jews were just murdered by Adolf Hitler. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to kill. Well, you don't understand it. You know, they're, they're, they're burning down Minneapolis. Holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty. Well, you don't understand. We've got to get this last Supreme Court judge in. Because if we don't, there's no hope for America. Oh, you mean America? Do you mean that nation that Jesus Christ said that all the nations that forget me will be turned into hell? Do you mean that nation that Isaiah said that in the sight of Jehovah God is a drop in the bucket? That he cares not for the Gentile nations of this planet? Do you mean that one? Well, what about the election? You think they're stopped? You think they're nervous? Well, you know, in the key battleground states, Biden's up 11. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And that is unbroken praise, no matter what is happening on this planet. Except for one thing. A single 
urine-stenched, foul, beleaguered, broken beggar cries out for God. And the Bible says that one sinner that repents causes even the angels of heaven to praise. There is one thing. There's one thing that still makes God stand still. An unsaved man calling out for mercy. Brothers and sisters, what has happened to the Laodicean church? That we could be so invested in one thing that doesn't have any eternal consequence. And yet we do not involve ourselves in the one thing that we will be able to do after we die, which is lead never dying souls of men to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I wonder if God can bless a church that can be so concerned with one thing and have so little to do with the other. Friend, I leave you with this thought. It's a wonderful thought. It's a blessed thought. Well, you're a negative preacher. I am a negative preacher. I don't like your personality. Nobody likes my personality. My wife doesn't like my personality. By the grace of God, I am what I am. But I will encourage you. I will leave you with this thought. I will leave you with something that you can go home for your Monday. I just, I'm looking for something for my Monday. Well, today's Sunday. I'm giving you something for your Sunday. It's a thought that a man would never even dare entertain were it not for the revelation of God about himself and his word. That being that there is no one or no thing in the universe as high and as deep and as wide, as mighty and mysterious, as powerful and propitious, as dreadful and dear, as punitive and pardoning as this man, Jesus Christ, that we've been talking about the very Son of God, there is still but one thing that makes him and all of heaven stand still. It's the bypassed, broken, blind, broke joke beggar Bartimaeus. And you, friend, you are a branch that has been engrafted on to the true vine because the Bartimaeuses of Sydney, Ohio are still waiting for the grace and mercy of God to come to their ear, down their town, down their road, down their highway. They're still waiting. But how shall he hear? Except there be a preacher. The royal feast was done. The king sought some new sport to banish care. And to his jester cried, Sir fool! 
kneel down and make to us a prayer. The jester doffed his cap and bells and stood the mocking court before. They could not see the bitter smile behind the painted grin he wore. He bowed his head and bent his knee upon the monarch's silken stool. His pleading voice arose. O Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. No pity, Lord, could change the heart from red with wrong to white as wool. The rod must heal the sin, but Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. Tis not by guilt the onward sweep of truth and right, O Lord, we stay. Tis by our follies that so long we hold the earth from heaven away. These clumsy feet still in the mire go crushing blossoms without end. These hard, well-meaning hands we thrust among the heartstrings of a friend. The ill-timed truth we might have kept. Who knows how sharp it pierced and stung the word we had not sense to say. Who knows how grandly it had rung. Our faults no tenderness should ask. The chastening stripes must cleanse them all. But for, I, for, but for our blunders, oh, in shame, before the eyes of heaven we fall. Earth bears no balsam for mistakes. Men crown the knave and scourge the tool that did this will. But thou, O oh Lord, be merciful to me, a fool. The room was hushed. In silence rose the king and sought his gardens cool and walked apart and murmured low. Oh God, be merciful to me, a fool. Today, we heard the words of a fool that lived in Jericho two millennia ago. He cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a fool. Maybe tonight his prayer would cause this royal feast to be hushed and to murmur low that God would indeed be merciful to us. Fools. No richer. No greater. No more significant. And some blind, broke joke. Beggar. Named Bartimaeus. Amen and amen.